0: This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. I'm afraid. Paul. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Now I'm a little creeped <laughs> out. <laughs> well, I finally thought, oh, I have a, maybe one that's uh, one of these conjunctions that's a little bit topical. <laughs> ah. Perfect. I like it. I was, I was excited. I, I felt proud about that one. Thought it up e- a year. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, where does the comma
1: go? I'm afraid, comma, Paul. Like, you're about to break some bad news. I'm afraid, Paul. I'm afraid,
0: Paul. <laughs> it's time to record. Yeah. <laughs> I like doing this, though. So, uh... <laughs> But our topic today is going to be about scary books that keep you awake at night. And I'm anxious to to hear what you have to say about all this. I'm anxious to share what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, just as a quick reminder, everybody, there is a newsletter. I think more and more people are are subscribing to it, which is nice because I, I really think that's a nice way for us to announce, here's a new episode, and here are the show notes, here's what's coming up next, here are just some little topics. Last week, we threw in some books that are coming out over the next few weeks that we thought looked enticing. Mm-hmm. and And fun, and so I think that's a fun way for us to keep in touch with listeners and for listeners to be able to respond and keep in touch with us. but you know do you do you out there? We only release them when the episodes go up. We're not sending out newsletters left and right and in between um we don't want to flood your inboxes that way, but anyway, something kind of fun to 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 have and we are uh, going to put some work into this one too, to get some more recommendations out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun.
1: And of course, as always, we're still lurking around on social media where a lot of you oh, also yeah. have reached out to us. So we'll be there too. It's not a replacement. It's just lots of good options.
0: Well, for, for months, everyone said, where are the show notes? Mm-hmm. And so we finally started doing show notes and publishing them on my blog, but even that was not an ideal place. I didn't feel for them. Um, or to announce things necessarily Uh, partially because it's not something that I maintain as vigorously as I would like to, or as I have in the past, I probably will get back to it. Uh, But you know, this is, this was the, Hey, this, this looks like a good, a good thing to do. Yeah. Something tells me that people will need those show notes after today's episode. (laughs) I'll be very curious to to hear, to hear what happens. Um, All right. Well, I am going to to start us out. We're going to get into what are you reading and we're going to talk about, you know, scary books in general. We're going to talk about uh, scary books that or scary stories that we read for this particular episode, kind of all mis- mismatched in there together. But I thought it might be fun to start with an email that we got from listener Christy Chess, just to set the tone. <laughs> nice. She says, okay, I have two scary books to share. And a poem. (laughs) The first is Watchers by Dean L. Coons. His description of the heroes waiting under a window ledge, backed up against a wall while the creature stands on its hind legs, looking in the window for him and growling, freaked me out for some time after I finished the book. The second is a children's book called The Night the Scarecrow Walked by Natalie Savage Carlson that I used to read to my son when he was small. (laughs) The Pip Pictures of the and description of the scarecrow stalking the children. Here, here's a here's from the book. A tall, lanky figure stepped from the scarecrow's post. It was draped in a long, loose coat, and the floppy brim of a hat fell over its face. It slowly stalked across the stubble. Yeah, we yeah. caught that you're reading this to your to your son when he was small, <laughs> right? <Christy. laughs> Scoring him a little. <laughs> The book is for seven to nine-year-olds, and I remember reading it to my son on a dark, rainy October night right before Halloween. I think he had to sleep in my bed that night. <laughs> probably probably felt like he deserved that one. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It sounds pretty amazing. And then finally, Christy shares a poem <laughs> called Little Orphan Annie by James Whitcomb Riley that has... It, I think it would be very difficult for me to read out loud because of the way that it is written here. I just tried it. I'll be honest, listeners, and we had to edit it out. It just wasn't working. Um, It was, it wasn't going to work for me, but Christy, we would love to have you send us a recording of you reciting this poem since you haven't memorized. I like that. (laughs) But I I do love goddess. Gotta love those wacky sixties parents scaring the crap out of their kids. Happy Halloween. And then she put a clown emoji saying somehow the clown emoji is scarier than the pumpkin, which yes, I agree yeah, with you. <laughs> absolutely. Clowns were watching scared me. We were
1: watching a Bob Newhart episode last night and there was a clown <laughs> in therapy in his laying in his office. Oh my God. Terrifying. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be in the context of the
0: show, but my wife and I looked at each other and we were just like, oh so, There's something about them. Well, and of course, I can blame Stephen King's It, but I was mm-hmm. scared of clowns before I read It. I think, most, you know, he, he he had a clown probably for a good reason. You know, it yeah. is both cute and fun and also always a little bit off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Well, Christy, thanks for sharing those and thanks for setting the tone for our episode. Yeah. Paul, what have you been reading? I have been reading something that will
1: make you very happy, because I know that we have brought it up several times over the course of this show, and I keep saying I want to read it, including our nature episodes, and it's the essays of Lauren Isley,
0: that yes. beautiful
1: Library of, American, uh, Library of America box set. So yeah, something finally inspired me the other day, and I picked it up, and I've been reading through the first volume. Oh man, you're right there, just <laughs> so amazing, both both the science of it, but there's a quote on the back and I meant to grab it and I didn't pull it out, but it's something along the lines of, you know, Isley is the scientist with the heart of a poet or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And man, that's exactly right. He not only is the subject matter that he's writing about absolutely fascinating, but there, I was reading out loud, like stopping my wife while we were reading, like, Oh, listen to this. And, you know, reading off lines left and right. Cause he is just a wonderful writer. The the language is absolutely beautiful the way that his mind works is really fascinating. I think it was in our nature episode where you talked about the essay, I think it's called the slit or something like that, where he's walking along and he kind of squeezes down in between this crack in the ground. And he's basically going down through geological time, you know, and he's talking about that as he goes. And then he comes face to face with the skull and he's kind of just talking about how that skull, you know, where it, where it lies in time and what it means to, evolution and all that stuff. And oh man, but anyway, yeah, he's, he's wonderful. I've been I'm probably about 75 pages in and trying to take it slow, but unlike some nonfiction books that you might read where you kind of have to, you know, force yourself to get back into it and you always enjoy it. Once you do, this is the opposite. It's, it's a bit of a page turner, just again, based on both the fascinating topics, but also just, he's such a compelling writer. So thanks again for recommending it. Oh,
0: you betcha! That that's definitely one of my favorite reading experiences of like my life. Yeah, <laughs> is sitting down with that volume, and I think I remember reading it about this time of year. I know it was getting cold outside. I stopped at a restaurant, you know, on my way doing some work stuff, and took it in with me. And I remember it being kind of a gloomy day outside, and just settling in and and reading some more of it. And it's so interesting because it's so uplifting Mm, even mm -hmm. though it's i don't know it's not like i mean he's writing about potential you know end of humanity at times and you know our our place in the cosmos maybe not as big as everyone has often thought in the past and yet it's so optimistic in some ways because we are here and you do we, we are able to see potentially, mm-hmm. and to learn and to just experience the wonders, even if we can't, and and, and we you know we can't comprehend all that's going on. Uh, I just I love that whole that whole collection, and I'm I'm trying here. I'm trying to find the um my post about it on Instagram because. Mm it has the line that you're talking about, but you know, of course when you try and do this live, it doesn't, it doesn't pull up um, as quickly as, as if I was just uh, scanning through things, but essentially it's like Henry David Thoreau of, you know, science Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not just nature writing, but of the cosmos and all of that. I, I love that collection.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you, I assume, it holds up throughout. I mean, the first five yeah. or six essays have all just been stunning. So, and I yeah. know that there's the rest of this one and then a whole another volume. So, you
0: know, yeah, I loved the whole thing. I loved, loved the whole thing. Awesome. So, yeah. all righty. Well, that's cool. Did, and did you, did I catch that you also were reading the shining? Is that something you were, you have done over the last few weeks? or no,
1: I've been, I decided to do it since I've read it quite a few times I decided to do that one on audio. So it's been kind of nice as I'm just driving around town or, you know, doing the dishes or whatever to, well, I don't know if nice is the right word, but (laughs) no, I really enjoy, I enjoy it. I, I like that it's set in Colorado because there's a lot of, you know, he talks about Estes Park and Boulder and obviously the hotel itself is fictional, but based on that stanley hotel that's in estes park and all that like we've talked about in the past but i like that aspect of it but also it's just so well done it's just you know i just read the part where the topiaries are all creeping up on him every time he looks away he looks back and they're a little closer and they've changed their shape and everything and i don't don't know that stephen king is always good at subtlety but that part the subtlety of it the kind of the creepy horror of it is so (laughs) so well done so yeah it's really good but i also like the fact that Obviously, not only is there the supernatural aspects, but also kind of the the alcoholism and, and some of the other mm-hmm. stuff that adds like it's kind of nice when, again, I'm using nice, but that's not the right word. But it's always interesting when a writer can tie in some real life creepiness with kind of the supernatural, which I think is something that will come up today in quite a few of the books that we'll talk about. To me, that adds a lot of power to it where there's the two working at the same time. So, yeah. But anyways, it's been Nice to return to that one. It's such a good, such a good book.
0: Yeah, that's, that's cool. I was going to get it for my son who's been reading Stephen King at the library, Mm -hmm. but it got checked out and never returned. They've lost their copy. So
1: hopefully you can request a new one or something.
0: Well, we'll see. I've been tempted to just go pick it up for him, but I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) A Halloween gift. There you go. (laughs) Perfect for that. How about you though? yeah, what have you been reading? So two things um as well. I finally finished last night. It's about eleven fifty five um, the Dresden Files book seventeen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> called Battleground. It's the last one so far. It is not the last one of his, you know intended, I think twenty five books., uh, so there's what is that? seven more. Potentially, wow. maybe even a little bit more than that, because I think he said he might have eight more on the docket. And I also feel like some of them are breaking into multiple books. Even the books are breaking into multiple books. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how the last two felt to me. They both came out in 2020 within a few months of each other. And I kind of thought it feels more like one book that was just too big for what you guys have had in mind. He's pulling and... the George R. R. Martin potentially. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of a relief. Like I've really enjoyed them. Of course. I mean, I, I read 17 of them over probably the course of two years now. And, but at the same time, kind of nice to say, okay, I don't have another one right now. When it comes out, I'll get to it mm-hmm. and can take it a little bit more that way. So I don't know what I'm going to to do as far as, you know, some audio series that sometimes I can listen to. Which is how I've done most of those. I've read a few of them, but for the most part, I listened to those on audiobook and, uh, you know, enjoyed enjoyed the performance. It's James Marsters who did um, a role in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, he's really good as an audiobook narrator. He's 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 got it down. I I really enjoyed just hearing how he did his stuff. That was fun, but I am done for now. <laughs> yeah, get a little bit of a break and then you'll be anxious for the next one. Yes, exactly. Um but otherwise, I this this isn't coming out for some time, so I feel a little bit bad bringing it up, but also really excited. Um I got an early copy of the next Caesar Ira book, Fulgentius. Nice. I've been looking forward to it ever since we got the catalog that said it was coming out. And Judging by the grin on your face, I don't think you feel too bad. <laughs> Come on, Paul. I feel terrible. Yeah. I, I, can I would tell. never, I would never want to do this. <laughs> I just feel compelled to. There might be interested listeners out oh, there. Oh, <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Um, but this is about a Roman general. He's 67 years old, and he, as it starts, is watching his play, a play he wrote, be put on by some of the soldiers um for the communities that they're that they're going through. And it is so funny, but this is a little bit more serious than Ira is as well. Like Hmm. this general is a little bit pathetic, but also probably very familiar as he sits there and is totally enraptured by his own play, his own words, thinking about whether the actors are doing a good job or not, Um, kind of looking around at the audience. There's this part here without losing track of the play, he glanced discreetly at the higher tiers and saw that they were sparsely occupied it was a cold day. That had to be taken into account. Even so, why did they make amphitheaters so big? He was aware that they were used for purposes other than theater, such as the the Panathania and other large-scale events, but they were fundamentally ill-suited to tragedy, despite the warrant of a thousand-year tradition. Apart from the fact that the actors had to strain their voices if they weren't using megaphones, precious details of expression were lost and distance hindered identification, the cornerstone of the tragedian's art. He would have pleaded for closet drama had he felt that the time was ripe for such an innovation. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, Fulgentius himself was not ripe. He was a product of the Roman Empire with all the limitations imposed upon him by the stage of civilization into which he had been born. Uh, But he just sits there and and watches people and kind of, you know, judges them. I mean, it's like watching one of these shows about like, I mean, a playwright in a Woody Allen movie or something Mm -hmm. like that. Very insecure, but also super smug. And um, I'm not very far into it yet, but just very excited to keep going see where this general goes. (laughs) That's awesome. And
1: I assume it's one of his more slim Books, no, like usual,
0: I, or is it? It is slim. I mean, but it's not like usual for him. This one is uh, clocking in at 163 pages. No, oh, okay, which is no, actually about twice as long as many of the ones that have been coming out.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's
0: fun. I like that he,
1: I, I like that he knows what he's good at, but I also like how he continues to kind of uh-huh. try new things and experiment a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll report back on this one for sure when yeah. I'm, when I'm finished with it because. You know, we gotta we gotta supplement our IRA episode now. Exactly. <laughs> the way he writes, it's not gonna be a problem to continue to talk about him, I don't think. Right, right. This will maybe someday morph into a an IRA podcast just in general. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where we'll bring up Lonesome Dove every once in a while and yeah. Agatha Christie. <laughs> exactly. He wouldn't mind. He wouldn't no. mind. <laughs> exactly. I don't think we could not do that. So, Paul, scary stories that keep you up at night. You suggested this as a, as a topic and as a title, and it's fun and it's topical. It's, it, You know, I love this time of year. I love getting creeped out. Mm-hmm. I love spooky things. I had a really hard time thinking of stories that have ever kept me up at night um, because I'm, I'm assuming the intention there is because of, you know, two things. One, it's creepy. It's hard to fall asleep if, if you're scared, you know, and, mm-hmm. and every little bump is, you know, suspicious, mm-hmm. but also it's compelling. You know, you, you, you have to see what happens. You have to know where the story is going in order to resolve itself and not be so horrific. Yeah. Uh, what were you what were you kind of thinking when you were putting this yeah. together? No, that was my initial thought, and, and I will admit that there
1: was, I was a little disingenuous because <laughs> as much as I love the topic, I think you and I probably have some similar experiences with scary books where <laughs> I always want that experience. Of uh-huh. being that creeped out, but I don't know that it has ever really happened. Probably, you know, not to keep repeating myself, but by far the closest I've come was being 13, 14 years old and staying up late reading Stephen King. I mean, that was certainly the time of my life where I was just shocked and scared and horrified and all the things that you know you want from horror and part of it was probably just my age and being a little bit naive and all that I think I'm always chasing and trying to replicate that feeling when I'm you know looking at scary books and movies and I don't know that I have ever really come up with anything that was quite that same experience so I'm with you like I love the idea of it. I think it's more for me, the the chase and the idea. And, and often I end up really enjoying the books, even if I'm not literally uh-huh. scared to go to sleep, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, I, I was thinking about horror in general. Yeah. And when it comes to horror, I'm definitely drawn to dread and kind of eeriness and that feeling of being unsettled more than, you know, I think jump scares or, you know, gory things, you know, whether it's in a movie or a book those work and they're very effective, but it's kind of a a little bit of a cheap thrill or a cheap thriller. it feels like a little bit of a cheat to me. You know, it's easy to have the cat jump out and then you relax. And Mm -hmm. then right after that, the killer jumps out or something like that. But I think it's a lot harder to sustain horror for an entire book or movie. But I also think it's more rewarding for both the reader or watcher, you know, if it's a movie, than just something like a, traditional you know jump scare or something yeah. like that. so i mean that's where like i said the title I, I i do like the idea of chasing that but for me it's often
0: more about mm-hmm. this kind of like ugh, just gives you the creeps kind of thing have you ever been like let's go beyond when you were a kid have you ever been scared while reading a book whether it's a book something that kept you up at night or not regardless of when you read it have you ever had that feeling of fear? Like, I am not safe. I need to get through these pages in order to get to safety. You know, kind of like I need yeah. to run upstairs and slam the door. I need to rush right. through this chapter and, and then shut the book. I don't know that I have. I'm trying to think. I mean, uh, what's his name? Daniel
1: Lewski, The House of Leaves. You remember that book that was like a big sensation? Yeah. 20, 25 years ago. I can't remember think of his first name. That one had like just a couple of glimmers of of it w- had so much promise. And in my opinion, fell flat on his face. I, I really, you yeah. know, that book, I have strong feelings only because I feel like it had so much promise. And so it's one of those where it's probably not as bad as I remember it being. But it just made me so mad because it could have been what it could have been. But that one had some moments where the house was kind of expanding and and giving these hints of like other things going on that was just really creepy but never quite followed through. But I don't think I've really had too many experiences like the one you just described, unfortunately. Like I said, it's the chase that you, I keep for. You want forward. them. I yeah. want them.
0: Yeah. How about you? Um, not that I can remember, mm. um, which surprises me a little bit because actually, like, movies do scare me. Like, I can be watching a movie and kind of get that feeling of, okay, I need this to keep going so that I right. can get... To you know again, to get to the other side, I know mm-hmm. i'll be okay once i once some of this resolves a little bit, and can feel that that fear you know that that creepiness that i you know and I like that feeling, yeah, my really wife does cool. not like that feeling at all, um you know but but she just still lets me every once in a while bring it in, in a horror movie um mm-hmm. one of my favorite memories when we were in london we we were students, so we were able to go to. Um, you know, the theater district and buy tickets the day of. And usually they were really nice tickets for like 10 pounds or five pounds. I can't remember. Um, One particular night there, they had box seats available for the woman in black, the Susan Hill book that was turned into the play. And they were a little bit more, but I thought, Oh, that would be fun. So it's just the two of us in a box watching this terrifying, but so fun play. Mm. And, I still think it was a great experience. I think that was a fun thing to chase again. Um, but she doesn't, you know, I, I do think she loved that too and really loved the story. Right. It's such a fun, you know, creepy story. And the play is really brilliantly done. Uh, but we don't watch a whole lot of horror together. So a lot of it, I just watched by myself and I find that it's not as scary that way. Yeah. You know, I, I just watched maybe a couple of weeks ago. Oh, what are those? Uh, paranormal activity. The first mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. I'd never seen it before and always thought the previews kind of looked creepy. You know, the camera sitting there looking down the hallway yeah. uh, while the, you know, the couple is in, you know, sleeping and, you know, I thought it was fun. Um, but those things don't necessarily scare me um, as much as I would like them to. Anymore. I know. but books have never really been able to do that for me. And I think it's a a question of the medium. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I have as good a visual imagination as other people do. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm getting it all like sciencey, I think my wife has an amazing visual imagination. She can read a book and I think she's there, yeah. you know, completely. And I'm just not that way. And for years I wondered why I love reading, but then, you know, learning a little bit more about this um, idea of, you know, if, if someone tells you, you know, think of an apple, how on a scale of one to 10, how real is that apple in your mind? You know, how mm. much can you describe it? And I'm not to a 10, you know, I, that, that thing is a little vague and a little fluctuating. I know what an apple is and I'm thinking of an apple, but it might not be as crystal clear yeah, and real as say one that my wife would, would be thinking of. And that's just how she is. And I think that that's fun. So she can get really, like I can be sitting next to her while she's reading a book and I'm like, she is gone from here. I better not make any sudden moves, you know, kind yeah. of thing, <laughs> That's funny. but I can put them down. Um, but I also think the other question of the medium is it's, I think it's hard to do a, a sudden scare in a book. I can, you know, maybe I, maybe my eyes are skimming the page, but, um, it, it, it's not quite the same as something that's visually right there in front of me, like in a movie yeah. that, that suddenly changes or shifts. Um, but I still love a good creepy book. I often find that books can very, you know, in, in my mind very easily make me get that sense of, Ooh, that is cool. Creepiness. Yep. Exactly. Um, And I, and I love that, but they, they don't have the, I, I just don't. And, and probably maybe it's also, that I put up all my defenses and it's easier for a movie to get around those defenses than it is for a book. I don't know. Yeah. But it doesn't quite spook me the way that I, you know, it, I, I guess it gives me cool feelings. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm usually more admiring of like, Oh, that's so neat. Yeah. That description is so well done that, that, what you're talking about is so good or even this, this, the atmosphere is so pleasantly creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, but Scared? No, no. I could. I usually could just, you know, it's time for bed. I need to put this down. You know, right? No, I'm the same way. And it's interesting because what you described about your wife is very
1: similar to mine. She will <laughs> have nightmares about it. You know, like that kind of thing. Like it'll get into her head. So <laughs> it's it's very interesting what you were saying about that, the apple and all that because I've noticed there's a lot of readers who get into very specific details. For example, when they're reading about what a character looks like, I could picture mm-hmm. him exactly what he would look like, and I do not do that at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's exceptions, you know, maybe like in kids literature, like, you know, again, Harry Potter or something like that. Obviously, there's a lot of time spent on the descriptions of the characters. The movies probably influenced it, but I have a pretty good idea of what they look like. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, like when I read, same kind of thing with with a character, for example. I know who it is, and I've been reading about them for 300 pages, but it's not like every time I read their name, I'm picturing their dark hair and the <laughs> type of glasses they're wearing or whatever. So, right, yeah. <laughs> I do. That's very interesting, that whole idea. I don't know if it's a movie can kind of remove that filter that you, as you're reading, you you inadvertently probably create some filters just based on the way your mind works. And then with a movie, it's almost like they can just inject it straight into you, you know, because it just, mm-hmm. if something jumps out, it is what it is. And you see it the way they want it to
0: appear kind of a thing. I don't know, but they've got the benefit of music and, Mm -hmm. and they are really controlling the pacing. It's not how fast I'm reading or whether I'm stumbling over a word I didn't quite capture. Right. You know, a director can be really in charge of, you know, almost pulling my hand down an alley. Yeah. Um, A book, I have to walk down that alley and might do it, you know, the wrong speed or be focused on the wrong things. Right. (laughs) But like you said, it's a very different experience, but it's still,
1: I love it. Like you said, it's admiring what they can do. It's letting, it's kind of soaking in the creepiness and just letting it wash over you, you know, which is a whole different thing, but it's still lots of fun. But yeah, I'm still chasing that whole, there's that episode of friends where Joey takes Cujo and sticks it in the freezer. Cause it's too scary. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what I'm chasing. I'll, I'll get there someday. Maybe.
0: Oh, listeners, we've got a project. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, we we probably should have had a horror expert on with us. I'd be curious about their answers because I, you know, the ones I know, I don't know if they're ones who get like scared. That's why they love horror. I think they love what horror books examine and, you know, a lot of the themes and, and exploration of the horror genre versus I just like being scared. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, it's like the English major. I just love to read okay, there's a little more to to really examine, you know, studying literature than just loving to read. And I, I kind of feel like a lot of our horror friends are probably really into it because of, you know, the extra things. And mm-hmm. I'm sure they love the experience as well. But I'd be curious about that. Which books have kept, say, you know, Bill Ryan, we talked about him, you know, a, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, uh, and his uh, horror recommendations for the month. And Ben O'Connell, I know is a is a big reader of horror. I think Gavin Wulcher, uh reads quite a bit of horror sh- uh, in the genre. I'd be curious about some recommendations of books that they think would actually scare us, yeah. um, and are you know beyond being just good examples of the genre, what would scare us? Because I'll, I'll admit the other problem that I have is I'm not a big horror reader. You know, I don't seek these books out. Just right. I don't go to the horror section of the bookstore. I don't look at what's coming out. It takes a book like, you know, getting extra attention Mm -hmm. than that for me to even recognize it. And then probably particularly personal (laughs) uh, recommendation for me to get to where I'm going to sit down and and actually go and and read it. And that just doesn't happen with horror very often. Yeah. John Self doesn't recommend a lot of horror books, you know. No, definitely (laughs) not. He needs to get step up his game. Well, one other thing that
1: I was just, if we're talking about horror generally, I think one of the things that I feel like is a shortcoming of that genre, and this is just me talking, so maybe people can point out examples where this is not true, but so often, whether it's a movie or a book, it starts so strong. It has such an amazing premise. You know, It's leading you yeah. along and there's, there's this mystery or something that's going on that is just so creepy. And I feel like I can count on one hand, the number of times where a book or a movie actually follows through till the end. And actually the payoff is worth all the Mm -hmm. buildup. And it makes me sad and frustrated because like, and I'm, I I understand why, because it's a hard thing to pull off because eventually you have to pull back the curtain and what you see is going to never match, you know, what
0: people have built up in their minds or, or what people have not been able to build up, but are, you know, like, I don't think I'm ever like, oh, what I imagined was so much scarier. It's that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so it was very scary. The unknown is scarier than the known. And so yeah, when they pull back the curtain, oftentimes it's anticlimactic. Yeah. Sorry, Uh, I interrupted you. No, no, that's exactly right. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's a baby doll. Okay. Yeah. And it's like,
0: (laughs) it's not that it's not solid, but
1: like you said, and so anyway, that's one of the things that I was, you know, as we're talking today, we're going to be discussing some short stories. And that's where I feel like when I do enjoy horror books, more often than not, the strongest ones tend to be short stories because of that very reason. I feel like either they can leave it alone and just never tell you, or even if they do end up telling you, it's it's like a shorter cycle of time. And so it's a lot more visceral and you're in the middle of it. So it's just something I noticed as I was both reading the stories for this week, but also mm-hmm. as I was trying to think of some books that I could talk about separately. You know, I was like, again and again, short stories seem to be, for me at least, one of the strong ways that this genre can work.
0: I I agree with you. A lot of my favorite experience, like a, a year or two ago, we were out by the fire. Mm. It was kind of getting dark, but I had a, enough light to read Lovecraft's uh, The Tomb to mm. my son at the time he was like 11 or 12. And that was really fun. And that one doesn't disappoint. um again i feel like some of these authors are okay leaving things ambiguous and unknown and as frustrating as that might be cuz you want to know it that's where it keeps keeps the fear going oh, yeah. for me or at least the sen- the spooky sensations going. Yeah, no for so. me that's
1: not frustrating. I mean i don't i don't want to if they did it every time it would get predictable but I love it. I love being left, especially in horror, but even in a lot of Mm -hmm. other forms of literature. I'm a big fan, whether it's the ending of The Sopranos or The Blair Witch (laughs) Project. I mean, I I think that to me is one of the most powerful things if it's done correctly that can happen because then it kind of eliminates this thing and and let your imagination continue. I mean, I still think about both of those endings so often because you just, you don't know. And so, yeah, I would argue that that's, again, I don't want every horror author to start doing that because then it would take the power away. But to me, that's actually one of the strongest ways that you can end something like this because it just, it leaves it
0: open-ended, you know? Well, so we did choose three short stories to kind of not, we're not going to analyze them in depth or anything like that, but to help us facilitate this conversation, we have uh, Edith Wharton's afterward, Robert Aikman's compulsory games, And then Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. Did any of these stories keep you up at night, Paul? (laughs) Um, Which one got the closest, uh, you know, if you're rating it on a spooky scale?
1: I would say on the unsettling and your mind can't stop chewing on it scale, probably compulsory games. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Do you,
0: do you want to just dive into it? Yeah, let, let's talk yeah. about compulsory games then as okay. it's kind of fitting in with what we're talking about. It's not a scary story. It's no. not and you know, never is there a moment where a monster's coming or well, kind of. <laughs> it does end with him being afraid of the moth, you know, a, a, an airplane flown mm. by an unknown pilot, potentially his wife or or the woman who used to be his Friend, he and his wife's friend, but who has somehow taken over his wife's life. I mean, it's w I'm, I'm jumping forward, but yeah, it ends, right. it ends that way. Um, but it's not scary, and there's very few spooky moments if, if to the extent there are any in this story. No, but it's more, of it's a, still unsettling.
1: Yeah, I mean, anybody who's read Robert Aikman before I talked about one of his other stories recently, he is just so odd <laughs> and it kind of is what we were talking about earlier where there's real life things going on it's just these pedestrian regular lives but then something creeps into them very often completely unexplained and in this case like you said this couple lives next door to this other lady eileen and they basically try to avoid her for years because she's just kind of dull and then and needy you know, she's lonely and, needy and lonely yeah and so, yeah, I mean, just a real quick summary. So the the wife, I don't have her name in front of me right now. Um, her her Grace. mother, Grace, her mother gets ill, and so she she goes to, you know, spend some time with her. And so then Eileen proposes that that the husband, do you have his name in front of you? Colin. Colin. Right? So she yeah. proposes that she and Colin, you know, have have a dinner. And so it kinda seems like something might happen between the two of them. You know, the wife's away and there's Potentially this tension and it just completely fizzles out. Nothing, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And then, so that you think that might be the end of it. And then all of a sudden, you know, a little while later, she starts spending more and more time with the wife
0: and mm-hmm. it's slowly just, it's so weird. It's it so unravels. Weird. She starts spending more time away from her husband, Colin, yeah. And he starts to feel and, more and more like an outsider, you know. Uh huh. Until eventually, it's it's complete. She's moved away. She has moved mm-hmm. in with this other woman to pursue their dreams of flight. Yeah, that's the weird. I mean, it's so <laughs> weird. Like they decide to start taking aviation classes and learning to fly together. Like what? And so, and he always is watching them flying around and kind of this that the shadow of this airplane on the ground as it goes a- around the community and and he feels he feels chased by it and that's where I think it really started to fascinate me is he just starts
1: hearing this buzzing sound all Mm -hmm. the time and he starts like you said seeing the shadow and he talks about the moth but there's like these hints of like is it even the moth like is anybody even flying this thing and it's like in true Robert Aikman fashion at least my interpretation of it is you don't even really know like I mean I suppose it is an airplane in the sky could just be having a breakdown based on everything that's happening but there's also like hints that it's more than that and I think that's Uh where Aikman is so good about like he doesn't hold your hand he doesn't really tell you and and so yeah I don't know it just
0: it's (laughs) I I keep thinking about it It it's kind of fun because I read this a few years ago for the first time when the book came out from NYRB Classics and I couldn't remember it I mean you said let's read compulsory games I knew I'd read it but I had no idea which story it was Mm-hmm. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is where his wife goes. And he goes and has dinner with her. And mm-hmm. as I'm reading it, flashes are coming back. But I couldn't remember the ending. And then all of a sudden it's the wife comes back and feels guilty because, you know, clearly something has put off uh, their their friend, you know, in quotes, mm-hmm. uh, neighbor. So she goes by herself to try and make am- uh, amends. And that's when their relationship starts. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this. All of a sudden mm-hmm. they get really kind of close. And then he, the, I but I had forgotten about the whole aviation part of it. <laughs> and when that pops up, I'm like, oh, okay. And weirdly, I remembered it almost like you remember North by Northwest of Cary mm-hmm. Grant running from the airplane in the court yeah. in the field out there in the middle of America. That's kind of how I remembered parts of this story. But that never actually occurs in the story. So clearly he's having that be an underlying, you know, pressure in the story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I feel like like that's there. Yeah. Even though it's not explicit.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. But the way I read it, because I read it the first time and I kind of was just like, whoa, like I didn't know what to think. And so I reread it a couple nights ago. And that's where I really lodged with me so if anybody does decide mm-hmm. to try this I would yeah i think two times it. is mm-hmm. right and to me what was so fascinating the second time is kind of watching this i guess it's like a psychological breakdown that he's having because he just seems like he's slowly losing it you know he's seeing that airplane everywhere he's hearing it everywhere and he, it, near the end he kind of goes off to this like hotel kind of area and just some of the landscapes that they describe around there are so eerie and it's almost mm-hmm. like this transformation, but there's this, you know, I'm just going to read this one part of, it's just a good excerpt of like the way Robert Aikman just drops in this, like totally bizarre. So, you know, it's talking about he arrives at this hotel and it's giving a description of it and it's kind of creepy. And it says, still the unknown hotel seemed quite nice as far as one could tell though. Colin had not altogether grasped before his departure from Kensington, how expensive hotels had become and then there's this paragraph just dropped in the machines cost enormous sums to maintain and every day there are more of them and huger and more intricate more bossy one cannot expect there to be much wealth left over for obsolete patterns of life and then it goes it would have been quite jo- it would have been quite jolly in the hotel room and it just like moves on and so when i read that i was like it kind of gave me the chills cuz i think that is like really creepy like i don't really even yeah. know where Maybe there's a more literal interpretation of that that I'm missing. But to me, it's more of just like there's some darkness going on underneath and it might be related to the aviation side of things. But it also he ends up kind of going through this transformation at the end. And so I don't yeah. know if it, it felt very Lovecraftian to me, that part.
0: Well, and the thing that stood out to me this time are all the moments where it's clear there is no real connection between the this couple. Mm-hmm. There's an absence there that they both have kind of created in order to be, be content with life. Yeah. You know, they've avoided entanglements. They think that the best thing to do is they mean, they don't have any other responsibilities other than work. And there's parts where like, here's Aikman talking about when Eileen has, has, started talking to Grace about aviation. It says, when the wine had softened both of them, this is Grace and Colin sitting there, and induced the usual illusion of fuller communion between them. Mm-hmm. Just all these parts about that they don't really have the relationship there. And I almost feel like this is Colin finding himself. I mean, it's clearly an existential dread kind of book mm-hmm. but it, or story, but it's done so well There's another part where Colin has gone off to the countryside by train. It says, there are few slow trains nowadays linking one real place with another real place. But Colin's train did stop several times before reaching his destination. Each time the noise of the wheels ceased, Colin became aware of its place being taken by aircraft noise above. Mm -hmm. So there's the aircraft there, but there's this idea of linking one real place with another real place and him being in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, he, he is, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough to put words to that sensation of, of kind of an unreality mm-hmm. suddenly the things that you've depended on to form your reality are not stable and are, are gone. And that's what we're reading about, but in such a weird story. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Again, if anybody hasn't read Robert
1: Aikman, I, I, I would highly recommend the more I read of him. The first time I read his collection, a cold hand in mine. And again, we keep mentioning Bill Ryan. He's a huge fan of his. I liked it, but I didn't quite know what to make of it because it's just so Mm -hmm. unlike anything you've ever read. Um, But the more of his stuff I read, I, I find myself thinking about it a lot. It's, it's, I don't know. Like you said, it's, it's not always horror in the strict sense of the word, probably never horror in the strict sense of the word, but talk about something that'll get into your head and just not leave you alone, which to me is one of the great things that horror can do.
0: So. And it's kind of cool when a story like this, that it doesn't ever. And, and I, when I say resort to, I don't mean that these are like shortcuts or not appropriate, but it doesn't ever resort to a darkened room, you know, mm-hmm. or some gloom or anything like that. I mean, this stuff's taking place in a bright countryside yeah. um, for the most part. He longs for, for days when, the sun is behind clouds because then the moth can't cast its shadow. Mm -hmm. It doesn't ever, you know, it's kind of like Stanley Kubrick's the shining it's mostly Mm -hmm. bright rooms and taking place in the daytime. And yet to create a sense of unease and horror within that makes it almost more powerful because it's, that's the reality we often are dealing with. We're not in that state where the mind is going to sleep, but you're still awake and it's dark and you know, it's late you know, those are fun, but it's really impressive when you can have similar things start to affect the way you look at your, you know, your living room at noon.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I think that's exactly right. It's yeah. He's often described as like an author of the weird with Mm -hmm. a capital W. And I feel like it definitely has that, um, that quality to it, which a lot of the books that I find myself drawn to, as I was kind of analyzing this and thinking about the horror books that I like. I definitely think there's a theme there for me.
0: Well, so why don't we share each of us one of the books that we kind of thought of as we were coming up with this list? I don't think we need to go in depth again. Um, we'll mm-hmm. try and try and move through these uh, and get back to some of these stories and kind of keep this going back and forth. But what's yeah. one of the books that you you brought up? So the first
1: book that I thought of um, was Mouthful of Birds by Samantha Schweblin. And it's translated from the Spanish by Megan McDowell. Um, So I don't know if you've read any of her books yet. I haven't. I haven't.
0: Including Fever Dream, which
1: is the one I always hear about. Exactly. No, and I really liked that one too. And Fever Dream, I was reading some reviews and that kept coming up of like, that is the perfect name for a book by her. (laughs) Because it has a a lot in common. Like I was kind of touching on with maybe like a Robert Aikman where it almost does feel like you're, just in reality, but something is off and you can't quite put your finger on it. And it's very interesting. So yeah, this collection was the first one of hers that I read. Um, and I remember reading it, like we were on vacation and I was actually sitting in like a water slide park and reading this, which was a very odd setting, but it was so immersive that despite the screaming kids and the sunshine and everything, I was just like continuously pulled into this weird little world word of her world of hers. So, um, There was a few descriptions I saw that that, like empty and non-specific with social rules that might as well be arbitrary was one way that I was seeing it described. And again, that kind of just reminds me of Aikman where there's that weird, like there's doesn't seem to be any rules, but there is like an internal logic that kind of pulls you along. Mm -hmm. It's very weird. Um, but she really does a good job of kind of letting the reader's imagination fill in these blanks, which again, that's something that I seem to really be drawn towards. Um, there's a couple of standout stories. There's one called Rage of Pestilence, where this it's kind of like the stranger walks into a town type of a situation. Everyone is really lethargic and kind of half asleep, and the entire town is covered in like dust. And he tries to intervene, but it ends up having disastrous effects and I'll just leave it at that. It's really odd. It kind of, (laughs) in some ways, like children of the corner, one of those where you come into this town and like, it's just off, but you can't quite figure out what's going on. Uh Or the first story is called headlights. And um, it's this woman who she just got married and her husband and her driving and, and she needs to go to the restroom. So he's like parking outside, waiting for her at like a rest station. And when she comes out of the restroom, he's gone. And there's all these other women wailing and screaming like out in the dark and basically this lady comes up to her and she's like, Oh, so this is your first time, huh? Yeah, they always end up leaving. And so it just kind of goes from there and like this really odd. And then the title story, I, I won't read this whole quote, but I'll just read a little bit here. The mouthful of birds says, Hi, Dad. Although my little girl really was a sweetheart, two words were all it took for me to realize that something was really off with the kid. And I was sure it had something to do with her mother. Sometimes I think I should have bought her, brought her to live with me, but I almost always think otherwise. Not far from the TV beside the window, there was a cage. It was a bird cage, maybe a foot and a half tall, that hung from the ceiling, empty. What's that? A cage, Sarah said and smiled. Sylvia motioned for me to follow her to the kitchen. That's his ex-wife. We stood by the window, and she checked to make sure Sarah wasn't listening. The girl was still sitting bolt upright on the sofa, looking out toward the street, as if we'd never arrived. Sylvia spoke to me in a low voice. Look, you're going to have to take this calmly. Come on, Sylvia, stop jerking me around. What's going on? I haven't fed her since yesterday. Are you kidding me? So you'll see with your own eyes. Uh Uh-huh. Are you crazy? She told me to follow her back to the living room where she pointed me to the sofa. I sat down across from Sarah. Sylvia left the house and we saw her cross in front of the window and go into the garage. And then it skips ahead and and then it says, Sylvia returned with a shoebox. She carried it level in both hands as if it held something delicate. She went to the birdcage and opened it, then took from the shoebox a very small sparrow the size of a golf ball. She put the bird into the cage and closed it. And so, yeah, I guess I'll read that part. She dropped the box to the floor and kicked it to one side, where it lay with another nine or ten similar boxes under the desk. Then Sarah got up, her ponytail shining and bouncing, and skipped over to the cage like a little girl five years younger. With her back to us, standing on her tiptoes, she opened the cage and took out the bird. I couldn't see what she did. The bird screeched, and she struggled a moment, maybe because it was trying to escape. Sylvia covered her mouth with her hand when Sarah turned back to us, the bird wasn't there anymore. And so it's just, it goes on, but it's like, Oh, she's very good at like, it's kind of like touching on the way that the girl is changing. So you could like read more into it of just like a father trying to deal with his, his teenage girl growing. And, you know, he doesn't live with her and all that stuff, but it's got this very odd and visceral, like this literally she is eating birds (laughs) and unsettled by it, but they just don't know what to do. So that kind of stuff. It's it's, I don't know if that was a great um, hook, but uh, to me, that was the story that I just kept thinking about after I was, it's so weird. So anyway, Samantha Schweblin. Are you picking
0: up, are you picking up um, seven empty houses? The new one. Yeah, I'm
1: excited about that one. I saw,
0: is it just now out or coming out soon? It comes out this, uh, I think it'll be out by the time this episode goes up. So in a few days,
1: no, for sure. She's very, very weird. And I will admit that I've yet to have one of her books. I've read both of them. Like, I don't know that they've yet reached like a perfect level for me. Like there's parts of them that I don't necessarily connect with. But the fact that I was so excited when I saw a new one of hers coming out, she's definitely got something, mm-hmm. you know, that that unsettling nature to her writing that really draws me in. So
0: yeah, yeah it's, it's really good. All right. Well, I'll go with my weird choice as well. Okay. So it is Andres Barba's Such Small Hands, uh, translated from the Spanish by Lisa Dillman. This was published by Transit Books a few years ago, 2017. Mm. And it's a book about kind of a girl's school, similar to something like Picnic at Hanging Rock, Mm -hmm. where there's a girl who has some kind of knowledge, her parents died in a recent car accident. Um, She survived. And now she is sent to live. It's not a school. It's an orphanage with other girls who, many of whom have never really known anything about the outside world. Um, But she does, you know, she has been out, out there. Um, And, it goes back and forth in this book between Marina kind of telling a bit of the story or from her perspective. And then the group of girls as a whole trying to understand Marina Mm. and they create this game, this ritual at night that is so creepy. I'm not going to get into what it, what they do. um, But it's, it's weird. I've read this book a few times and the second time again is where you kind of start to go, okay, now that I know what's going on, I can start to figure out why, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, why Mm -hmm. is this going on? But the girls would, would go and um, play this game that Marina created for them. Um, This is her way of, of being in control. Meanwhile, these girls, the group practically, uh, you know, it's predatory. These girls uh, want to connect with Marina, but at the same time, they, recognize she's other and want to annihilate her um i put in my review it's it's almost like they are trying to do to her what she does to them which is a feeling of just being reduced Mm. in their presence and so they have this game such small hands you know here's the the game of these kids um but i love the way that they would um they would talk about it that They would get ready for the game when the adults leave, and they say, Then, in the dark of night, a strange sound would send the first sign. We'd billow like skirts in the wind. We'd start to live inside the game, the anxiety of the game. Soon, the second sign would come. There would be no doubt now. It could be anything, a whistle, the sound of creaking wood, even silence. And then slowly, we'd get out of bed, without even brushing up against each other, and our bodies would feel lighter. Not even then would we feel the cold of the floor tiles, be afraid of the dark. We were the cold, the dark. And so we'd go to Marina's bed, sleepwalkers, obsessed with one idea, starting the game. So yeah. it didn't keep me up at night, but it's definitely unsettling and wow. in line with some of the books and stories we've just been talking about.
1: Sounds like at that Just, I mean, it may not be similar, but it kind of reminded me of a book I read earlier this year called Jawbone by Monica Ojeda, Mm -hmm. only from the fact of like the group of girls that would get together and have almost these ritualistic games that have, I don't know if that one that you were describing has some cruelty. It sounds like it might. And so, yeah, it's it's an interesting connection. So that sounds really good. I feel like I've heard of that one, but I didn't know much about it. So I'll have to look it up.
0: It's it's, It's a worthwhile read. It's very short. I mean, mm. some novella essentially. Mm. Um, Once again, which whether is perfect. That's, yep. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's let's move on to one of our next stories. Uh, let's let. Do you want to end with the ghost story for Edith yeah. Wharton, and so we'll go on to the Cask of Amontillado,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because this is an Edgar Allan Poe, you know, known for being as Gothic horror, scary, and yet the Cask of Amontillado isn't very. Scary either in terms of you know monsters or darkness. It's dark inside the human, mm-hmm. um, and the way that it can be so charming and someone who isn't a good person, you know, but is innocent of anything that should lead to his fate. <laughs> mm. And I love this story. So I think good. i I told you I used to teach this one uh, when I taught some literature classes. Again, a lot of students would come knowing Edgar Allan Poe, but not really, or mm. loving to read, but not really trying to dig into the why yet. You know, it was an introduction to literature class. And this was a really fun story to dissect because they they almost universally would, you know, start it and then read to the end. You know, they they didn't it wasn't a story many of them had any troubles getting to the end. No. And Beyond, whoa, did you really like the story? It's like, okay, now, how does Poe make you want to keep reading? All it is for a lot of it are two men walking to a wine cellar. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. What's so fun about that? What's so compelling about that? How does he make it that you need to go on and you start to feel fear and anxiety because of two men walking to a wine cellar? And it was a good way to start getting them to analyze the hows and the and the the effect of these on on them it was a lot of fun, yeah, I bet no that would be a perfect one and and what I was noticing when I was reading
1: it is how much of it is it's so much psychologically based, you know there's his pride because he says the thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge, so it's like this his pride has been hurt, and he will mm-hmm. do anything, and then one of the ways that he lures um him down into the cellar is based on pride too, because he's like, you know, I got this great wine in, but I'm pretty sure I got ripped off, you know, but I know you're busy. So I'll go talk to so-and-so because yes. he's really an expert in the. And then he's like, no, no, you know, I, I can do it. I, let's go right now. You know? And so there's this weird psychology and this pride that keeps popping up where two or three times, it's really fascinating throughout as he's leading him down the cellar, he'll be like, oh, you know what? You're starting to cough like we should probably turn back i'll just go talk to that other guy like he can help me with this problem and he's kind of like baiting him and like almost giving him an out and that creates that weird tension where you as the reader it's kind of like when you're reading patricia highsmith's um, ripley books where you all of a sudden you find yourself rooting for this really nasty person and you're like why does he keep giving him chances to get away like and you almost find yourself like you know not really hoping that it'll work but you're like you know, it's kind of like Breaking Bad or any of those <laughs> where you're like, why do why am I kind of rooting for this guy to not screw this up? So it's I thought that was one of the really interesting things about it is just
0: all the psychological
1: tension that's going on inside of it.
0: And this is a horror story that ends right at the peak of horror as yeah. well. Like, it doesn't resolve itself um, quaintly. Mm -mm. It's like you've been building up to the fear and the horror, and it's then that you you have Fortunado first off being a little bit, you know, surprised, and then some fear, and then some, ha ha ha, you're playing a really good joke on me, let me out. And his screams, you know, that oh. that's kind of how this thing ends. And you're like, wow, the real horror is what's going to happen to this poor man over the next few weeks. <laughs> I know.
1: Well, and just the sick twist of it. Like, like you said, he starts to probably not calm down, but it, like after a while, it like, gets quiet after he's built up the mm-hmm. wall and there's like one little brick left to do or something like that. And it's quiet. And he can't be happy with that. He takes the torch and, basically starts wiggling it around and then throws it in there and sets off the screaming again. Like, Oh, talk about a, a sick ending. And then the guy starts screaming and he's like, okay, now
0: I can do it. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> I almost wanted to go reread it right now. Cause it's so fun. Why is that fun to me, Paul? I don't know. But- <laughs> well, that's what I mean. That's when I, like, like I said, with like the Ripley books
1: or, mm-hmm. you know, some of those, the Sopranos or just whatever it is. Like there's something about that. Like, being inside the mind of somebody who is not right that it is fun
0: there's no denying that (laughs) well did any of the the two other books that you brought kind of lean into this type of uh spooky horror i'm trying to think revenge the, the 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 horror of the human heart.
1: <laughs> I don't know that they necessarily do. Um how about you? I mean, is there one I, that you could tie I, in? Yes. Okay, yes. I'll let
0: you do that and then I'll kind of go off on my own little trail. Yeah. You'll get us wrapped around again. Yeah. Um so one of the ones that I brought it is is a really creepy story that that was filled with with moments of of good old creepy autumn atmosphere and it is the oh. other by thomas tryon um came out from nyrb classics maybe a decade ago and it's possible that it's really scary to me because i have a son named holland he's the one who likes all the horror stuff Uh oh and this is about twins holland and niles perry (laughs) and oh paul (laughs) do you know anything about this story? Only that I've had it on my list to
1: read for years and have not yet read it. And that as far as a few years ago, I think you and I were kind of sharing some of the creepiest NYRB covers mm-hmm. back and forth. And that one definitely qualifies. That's all yes. I know about it.
0: Yeah. So it's surprising. And I don't, I don't think going too far into it, it. On the one hand, some of the main events are early in the book but knowing about them in advance probably takes away some of the power of the mm. of the horror and i i mean because usually you don't have these things happen in a book that has children you know mm. they have they have uh the twins holland and niles perry and Hol- um holland is is the prankster and they get a little bit more and more uh a little bit more and more sinister his pranks and it is to the point of, of, of some, some deaths. This is on page 54 of, of a book that's, you know, 250 pages. So I won't consider it too big of a, of a, of a spoiler. But Russell Perry, one of their friends, has just died. It says, Russell Perry is in the parlor, in his coffin, open to view. It is from the parlor that the Perrys have always been buried. In the parlor, they are christened, or betrothed, or married. Dead in the parlor, they are laid out. It has always been so. The shades drawn, the casket on, black draped trestles, looped with cords and tassels, sighing, whispery, shadow-like forms, slipping in silently to mourn, to regret or, secretly as some will, to savor, laying warm lips against cold, unyielding flesh in last farewell. This is the Perry's Way. But it's pretty horrific how all of this goes down. Um... And then where the book goes from, from here, mm-hmm. uh, a good, a good horror novel for sure. Nice. And one with surprises, you know, things that it, it, it is surprising how it all kind of plays out, but definitely moments of, of sheer horror as as best as I can describe it. Mm. Probably the closest thing in the last decade to a book that would have genuinely, had me reading and not wanting to keep going. Wow.
1: Okay. So you're selling me. Just do you <laughs> know off
0: the top of your head when was that one originally written? Just roughly like was it let's see. I can look that up. I Sorry, put you I want spot. to say 1967. Let's see if I'm right. Nope, 1971. So yes, okay. right in that nice period of bucolic horror. You yeah. Know. <laughs> right. That's funny. Nice.
1: No, I'll have to check that one out for sure. Well, unfortunately, I can't really make any strong connections because I think I'm going to be kind of one <laughs> one note. I, that's what I mean about I was realizing that's okay. the, types, the types of books that scare me seem to have some very common themes. So the one that I thought of was by <clears throat> Nathan Ballingrood, and it's called North American Lake
0: Monsters. No, you've told me about this one before. Yeah,
1: it's another short story collection. Surprise, surprise. And again, repeating myself, but Bill Ryan, our good friend, was the one who originally put Ballingrud on my radar. And I went back and found his blog post about this. And he said, if I had to compare what Ballingrud is doing to anything, I'd have to say his fiction is akin to the work of Larry Brown or Daniel Woodrell, but with monsters. Okay. And I really liked that description because it is exactly right there. Again, it's rooted in reality. There's often these people who are going through poverty or relationships or different kind of real life, you know, horrible things or at least tough things and then you inject some kind of weird monster or strange thing going on. So, you know, the title story, um we follow this man who's just come back from prison and he's basically trying to reintegrate himself into his life. He has a wife and a daughter who is now a teenager, but when he left for prison she was younger and so I guess in some ways it ties again into that mouthful of birds thing of just there's something going on like where he's trying to establish himself in this relationship. But like so many of Ballingrude's stories, there's this balance of, of kind of real life and terror. So I'll just read a a real quick um, excerpt here. It says after a few moments, so his, his daughter basically has told him, Hey dad, I want to show you something. Come here. So it says after a few more moments of trudging in strained silence, they rounded a small bend and came upon the monster. It was as big as a small van, still partly submerged in the lake, as though it had lunged onto the ground and expired from the effort. Grady drifted to a halt without realizing it, and Sarah went ahead without him, walking up to the huge carcass, as casually as if she were approaching a boulder or a wrecked ship. Jesus, Sarah, don't touch it. She ignored him and pressed her fingertips against its hide. What are you afraid of? It's dead. He was having trouble apprehending its shape. It looked like a huge, separated heart. It seemed a confusion of forms as though the weight of the atmosphere crushed it out of true. He had the strong impression that underwater it would unfurl into something sensible, though perhaps no less strange. Oh, I love that description so much. Like (laughs) it had been crushed out of true and underwater it would unfurl into something sensible. Um, So I won't keep going even though I could, because I think he's a really good writer and, and he goes on to describe just how disgusting this monster, but also a corpse So as you can tell, like, I mean, they don't really, it's not an existential threat. It's, it's dead, but it's the fact that he is just walking along this cabin lakeshore and his daughter wants to show him something. He walks around the corner and there's this giant monster that's just washed up on shore and they don't really tell you anything more about it. So that's kind of the tone of a lot of his stories that again, I feel like there's something there that really draws me in. So it's not, again, jump out or slasher kind of horror. It's just this, like, there are things out there that we don't know yeah. about. It's the horror
0: not- is that it exists at all. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. So there's another one that he, in this collection called Crevasse, and it's about these explorers um, in the Antarctic area. And they're having a lot of the normal stuff you would expect maybe from like a into thin air. Like there's some problems going on with, you know, life and death issues. But then one of them falls down into a crevasse and there's some very supernatural hints of things that are going on underneath the ice
0: that, again, Hmm. just kind of gives me the willies. It's like The thing or something like that. Exactly. I like those Arctic horror (laughs) tropes. I do too.
1: Yeah. And so he has another collection called Wounds, Six Stories from the Border of Hell, that came out more recently. And those are very much more of... They're not traditional because he is a weird dude who writes really his mind is fascinating to me, but it's got a lot more like based in hell, you know, kind of hellish things and demons and things like that. And it is really creepy, too. And between these two collections, it's probably the more traditionally scary of the two, but partially because uh, North American Lake Monsters is the first one I read, but also just because some of the the stories in it have just stuck with me so long. That's probably the one I would recommend starting with. So Ooh, that sounds yeah. fun. Yeah, it's really fun.
0: Well, the last story that we were going to touch on in the episode is Edith Wharton's "Afterward." It's in her collection "Ghosts," which is a collection of her ghost stories she herself compiled, um, you know, around the time that she died. Actually, it has a really nice uh, foreword by or preface by Edith Wharton herself. Mm-hmm. That she kind of laments that with electricity and all the you know new technology. Ghost stories and the horror they can provoke might be dwindling, Um, but there's a lot to be scared of out there. (laughs) And, And this one's, you know, some of these are more scary, I guess, or spooky than others. This is a fairly traditional, I felt, ghost story. Yeah, I agree. Afterward. But she's such a good writer, and I just like the way this one begins. It says, oh, there is one, of course, but you'll never know it. And at the time, you don't know what they're talking about, but you can figure it out. Um, They're talking about a ghost at this house. And and what's happening here is a couple, again, uh, uh, let's see, Ned and Mary Boyne are looking for a home. The more uncomfortable, the better, because they have this romantic idea that they need to, you know, they have this romantic idea idea of the past and particularly of something probably Gothic and horrific. Mm-hmm. They want there to be a ghost or a story of a ghost in this home that they, they get, but this is what the, their friend, who's kind of pointing them in the direction of this home, uh, a light stare is her name says, Oh, there is one of course, but you'll never know it, which is like, mm-hmm. well, that's so fun. You know, <laughs> yeah. how, how, and they, you know, at the beginning of the story, they are talking about this every once in a while, like, well, what's the use of having a ghost if you don't know it? Yeah. Um, and she says, it's it. You, you might know it, but you won't know it until afterward, not till long afterward. Mm-hmm. And that's how the, the story plays out. And it's got some fun things because, you know, this particular conversation, um, I love how Edith Wharton puts that they are having a, like a little, they're, they're drinking tea in a June day out in the garden, you know, but um, the... The wife, Mary Boyne, is thinking about it on a nice December evening in the Mm. creepy library. (laughs) I know. Some of those descriptions. Yeah, it is really good.
1: Some of those descriptions of the home, like you said, in the library are so good. And this is, like you said, in a lot of ways, a very traditional ghost story, but it's so well done. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that it's a couple of Americans who basically he's (laughs) he's performed some kind of business deal. We don't get a lot of details in the beginning where he's come into a bunch Mm -hmm. of money. And so they basically have all this money and they want to go, like you said, kind of naively, you know, they're playing house a little bit where they want to go find this, like, you know, unadorned kind of creepy old house that's haunted. And so they never be happy
0: if it's not thoroughly uncomfortable. Yeah, (laughs) so exactly.
1: I know. And they're so easy to kind of like roll your eyes out a little bit, but I really like that. She kind of takes that trope and, and drops them into it and then kind of moves on from there. Mm -hmm. And, yeah there's like you said her writing in particular is what's so good. Um there's one part where they're talking about the home and um it says the butter had certainly been laid on thick at Ling. The old house hidden under a shoulder of the downs had almost all the finer marks of commerce with a protracting with a protracted past. The mere fact that it was neither large nor exceptional made it to the Boynes abound the more completely in its in its special charm. The charm of having been for centuries a deep, dim reservoir of life. The life had probably not been of the most vivid order. For long periods, no doubt, it had fallen as noiselessly into the past as the quiet drizzle of autumn fell, hour after hour, into the fish pond beyond the ewes. But these backwaters of existence sometimes breed in their sluggish depths strange acuities of emotion. And Mary Boyne had felt from the first the mysterious stir of intenser memories. And I thought that was just about as good of a description of a kind of a haunted house as you could ever get, because it's talking about... You know, there's not a lot of things have happened in this house. A lot of them have just been very normal, maybe even dull, but it's like this accumulation of memories and you can just kind of feel them in the background. I thought that was pretty amazing.
0: You know, this whole collection, I love it. I love how nicely Wharton introduces each story. Mm. She has great opening lines and opening paragraphs uh, almost universally throughout this whole book that I don't know if you have you explored this one much more than this. No, I haven't. I'm actually really looking forward
1: to it. It's been one of those that I've... It, again, I say this a lot. It's been on my
0: TBR pile, and this has really prompted me to pick it up. They're just fun. They're just fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, All Souls, the first one. Queer and inexplicable as the business was, on the surface, it appeared fairly simple. At the time, at least. But with the passing of years, owing to there not having been a single witness of what happened, except Sarah Claiborne herself, The stories about it have become so exaggerated and often so ridiculously inaccurate that it seems necessary that someone connected with the affair, though not actually present. I repeat that when it happened, my cousin was, or thought she was, quite alone in her house. Should record the few facts actually known. Just a fun way to begin. Here's the next one, the eyes. And this one just feels comforting. We had been put in the mood for ghosts that evening after an excellent dinner at our friend Colwyn's by a tale of Fred Merchard's, the narrative of a strange personal visitation. I mean, that she just jumps right into mm-hmm. it, it with this one. Um, again, and then there's the Lady's Maid's Bell that is probably, I think it's one of her first stories, and... It's got a, It's a longer introduction than those two that kind of get you in, but it's basically, it was the autumn after I had the typhoid. I'd been three months in hospital, and when I came out, I looked so weak and tottery that the two or three ladies I applied to were afraid to engage me. Most of my money was gone, and after I'd boarded for two months, hanging about the employment agencies and answering any advertisements that looked any way respectable, I pretty nearly lost heart for fretting hadn't made me fatter and I didn't see why my luck should ever turn. It did though. Or I thought so at the time, (laughs) Mm. just really fun little, you know, she just really lets you in. I thought, I, I don't know. All of them, I think are that way where you just start and there's no beating around the bush before you're like, I'm in the hands of a great storyteller. That's what I was going to say is you can tell just her assurance and the
1: fact that she's taking what, some of these are very traditional, Um, not Mm -hmm. a trope. I don't mean that in a, you know, a patronizing way, but like she takes these kind of classic ideas, but you can just tell that she knows exactly what she's doing. And she does such a great job of pulling it off. It's really amazing.
0: So I think my favorite scary stories are weird ones. Like we've been talking about and also ghost stories. I love haunted house stories. Yeah. And you and I spoke about this a bit ago. It might've been offline. I don't know why I like them. I don't believe in ghosts. My wife gives me a hard time about that. Hmm. I think she's, you know, I don't know. I don't (laughs) know exactly where we stand on all of that. But um, I love the possibilities of these things. You know, I love the idea that you could stumble upon something from the past in a hallway somewhere. Mm -hmm. I love the atmosphere of, you know, Victorian London with all of its great ghost stories, and and the idea that you could be wandering down the street and see somebody walking down in a top hat, you know, from the past, mm, yeah. or I, I don't know. I, I love ghost stories. I love the headless horseman. I love all of that kind of stuff. I, I love that creepiness that can settle in. Um, I just I don't know why, but these are among my all time favorite. They they get me giddy. You know, yeah. ghost stories make me feel giddy, not scared, but in a in a fun, creepy way. I love them. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think that's probably my problem with a lot of horror is I'm
1: too much of a skeptic in general to like <laughs> ever truly like. If I'm watching The Exorcist or whatever, it's like I can right.
0: appreciate it, but I'm just like, okay. But yeah, that uh, that similar experience. I that that movie I know terrifies many people, even yeah. people who aren't you know don't believe in what it's saying either. Right. Never, ever has mm-hmm. it affected me. <laughs> no, me
1: either. But like you said, there's, I, I, when I can get into the right headspace and just kind of suspend my disbelief. And like you said, for me, that seems to happen most easily with ghost stories for sure. Because like, even you think of like, charles dickens the christmas carol where like the hearse drives right through you know the, i don't know if it comes down the stairs or drives right through his room or whatever and it's just ugh, yeah. <laughs> you know so so cool but um yeah no, i'm with you ghost stories and and again somebody like wharton or or dickens who can do it so well i think that's what a lot of it is and i don't know if they're the ones that kind of built up i think they were playing off of previous tradition but I think also some of the power is that they have helped kind of sustain some of these ideas and even build them that we yeah. think today. You know, so I think there's a lot of that too.
0: They're just such good storytellers. They're great writers. They can lead you again by the hand mm-hmm. to Give you just where about. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's whimsy and fun, and they tend to latch on to cultural feelings. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things I think I like about ghost stories is they're they're appropriate for christmas eve as well because of someone like dickens you know you can they have that sense of security amidst the the not terror but amidst the i don't know the uncanny and the and the threatening to an extent you know i yeah I, i just love them it's kind of like how we talked about how it's weird how some
1: you know, murder stories like Agatha Christie can be like a comfort read. It's kind of that same <laughs> idea with some of these ghost stories. Like if you think about yeah. what you're actually reading, like why would that have any amount of
0: coziness or comfort to it? But it kind of does. It's it's very odd. So my last book that I will bring up, it, it is a ghost story. And it's one that I was, I tried to find something different because I've brought it up in the past several times, but it, it it genuinely is one of these that i can look back on i remember reading it for the first time and it getting late and thinking i got to keep reading this so mm-hmm. one that fits the bill and that's henry james the turn of the screw ah yes i just love this story so much i get i i love the beginning i love the the uncertainty of what is actually happening you know the multiple ways that you can interpret this story i love the the richness of all that i love it as a ghost story i love it as a psychological Um, collapse story and I didn't realize this but apparently I love creepy children because each Mm. one of my books that I brought up today (laughs) features creepy children the other the turn of the screw and such small hands so yes I guess that that, those work on me Um, there's something about that mixture of innocence and sinister absolutely um, that that piques my interest, I guess, mm-hmm. but a great ghost story. In fact, even just last night, we have some nephews in town and they were like, oh, should we watch a scary movie? And I'm like, oh, you guys need to watch Jack Clayton's The Innocents. It's based mm-hmm. on the turn of the screw. They have no idea what I'm talking about, but I showed them the like beginning where you hit the lullaby Yeah, and it creeped them all out. You know, I don't think they watched it. I think they had other things in mind, but it works. I just love that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So, so I got a ghost story for my last one. I won't go into depth because I've done it before and it no, seems like most one. people know the turn of the screw, but yes, definitely one that I, I just love. I love the story and mm-hmm. I can't wait to, I need to figure out the, I haven't shown the movie to my kids, the Innocents. It's one of my favorite little ghost horror story, horror movies, uh, but we're getting close. It could no, happen I this no. year. Yeah, no, I love that has another one of those things
1: of just the person who is stuck into a strange situation and they're noticing things that are going on, but they Mm -hmm. can't convince everybody else or they're not sure if they're seeing things. And that's another one of those interesting things of just like you're kind of in that person's mind and you're seeing it along with them, but it's like they can't convince everybody else or you're not quite sure what's going on. I love that. So good. (laughs) Well, let's hear your last one. So my last one is Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. Oh, I'm working on this. Oh my God. If I was, I didn't mention it earlier, but if I was going to think of a book that I couldn't stop reading and partially Mm. because I I didn't want to stop and partially because I was so creeped out, this one might be about the closest. There are some parts of this book that about as close to just being like actually scared as I've ever been because it is, Bizarre, very <laughs> haunting. Um, I read it while we were staying up at a house in the mountains, and I have some very strong memories of this. So, <laughs> a lot of people may know between the book and, you know, it's a fairly well known story, I think, but Area X is this abandoned and apparently kind of unspoiled stretch of the US coastline. And we're not exactly sure what's going on, but it's held under strict quarantine by some kind of a government agency called the Southern Reach. And so, You know, it's been cut off from the rest of the world for decades. And so nature has kind of started to reclaim it, but in some very odd ways. And so very quickly we learn there's been some different expeditions that have been sent into this mysterious area to try to figure out what's going on. The first one returns with reports of this really pristine kind of landscape where everything is unspoiled. The second expedition ends in a mass suicide. the third expedition there's all kinds of there's basically a big shootout between its members as they turn on one another and so the members of the 11th expedition so it you know it skips ahead they've been sending people over and over again when they come back they're just like these shambling zombies they're just not themselves anymore and then within a few weeks all of them die of cancer and so basically where we start on this book is the 12th expedition is about to start with all of that preceding it and so we are um, joined, joining these four women. There's an, they're just known by their titles, anthropologist, surveyor, psychologist, and then our narrator is the biologist. So I'll just read real quickly. It says, our mission was simple to continue the government's investigation into the mysteries of area X, slowly working our way out from base camp. The expedition could last days, months, or even years, depending on various stimuli and conditions. We had supplies with us for six months, and another two years' worth of supplies had already been stored at the base camp. We had also been assured that it was safe to live off the land if necessary. We needed to acclimate ourselves to the environment. In the forest near base camp, one might encounter black bears or coyotes. You might hear a sudden croak and watch a night heron startle from a tree branch and distracted step on a venomous snake, of which there were at least six varieties. And so it goes from there and then... um, It starts describing this. So there's like the natural, like pristine part, but there's something else going on there that we're not exactly sure. It says, far worse though, was a low, powerful moaning at dusk. The wind off the sea and the odd interior stillness dulled our ability to gauge direction so that the sound seemed to infiltrate the black water that soaked the cypress cypress trees. The water was so dark, we could see our faces in it and it never stirred, set like glass, reflecting the beards of gray moss that smothered the cypress trees. You know, so it goes on and on. I won't keep reading, but so basically, it, it drops you in and, and you're with these explorers. They have all of this history of these failed expeditions and all these mysteries of what's go- going on. And then things start happening. And I, I won't even pretend to try to describe it because Jeff Vandermeer's mind is so weird. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. There's just some scenes out of this book that have stuck with me. And I, I was thinking about it. I guess there is kind of a correlation because I feel like there is some ghost story aspects to this in a very different way. So it's kind of about yeah. ecology and and there's like some climate change. It's not hit, hitting you over the head, but it's like man's impact on the natural world and how we have skewed things to where it's not what it should be. But it's also looking back on some of these histories, there's people that are kind of trapped or or at least beings or, or something that is trapped in this area that has a ghost. Story aspect to it, and memory, and haunting, and their psychological breakdowns, and it's got about all of it that you could ever want. And boy, this book—I don't know—the whole trilogy is strong, but especially the first book. To me, I agree. Yeah, it's Ugh.
0: the best one, I think. Mm-hmm. So, I actually think that the the first line I think of quite often. Um, I I was reading it on a holiday too, up at a lake. Mm-hmm. So, just no, interesting. It, <laughs> But I remember reading the tower, which was not supposed to be there, plunges into the earth in a place just before the black pine forest begins to give way to swamp. And then the reeds and wind gnarled trees of the marsh flats. It's got this great map of, oh. you know, you you can almost get into some of these fun stories we talked about with like, um, oh, uh, the invention of Morel, where you mm-hmm. got this creepy location that is known for its marshes and its tower, you know, this mixture of man-made, but weird things, the tower that plunges into the earth and wow. nature. I love those kinds of stories. And this one was wow. again, my favorite of that group just because a lot more of it felt like uncertain and uh, you know, tentative. Yeah, no, that's a great comparison to the island of
1: Merle. I actually wouldn't have thought of that, but it is like, cause it just has, again, this, this person who's kind of plunged or these people that are plunged into this weird landscape where on the surface, it seems fairly serene, but uh-huh. you quickly learn it's very much not the case. Yeah, I will. His mind, like I said, I keep saying that, but he is such an odd guy in his ability <laughs> to capture these landscapes. I read another one of his several more of his books, and I would recommend anybody just to plunge into some of his books. There's he's got these weird things with bears going on. There was one called Born <laughs> B-O-R-N-E that I read that was just so
0: odd. And I think about it all the time. He's a really interesting guy. It's those FSG MCD originals that I, mm-hmm. I really like the production of their books. They're fun to mm-hmm. hold and read from. They're 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 well done and just good. Yeah, I I, I second this recommendation for okay, sure. Good. I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about it in the context of this episode, but well, like I said again, it's not. I mean, I,
1: this one is. I guess pretty traditionally a horror book in in a lot of ways because it's kind of almost like a haunted house going into it, and not yeah. knowing what's going on or something like that. But all of the ones for me, it's like I, I definitely have noticed for me, it seems to be the the magic spot is where it's reality with these undertones of something that's not right.
0: Yeah, and this has like some sci fi elements mm-hmm. and you know some, some fantastical elements with like a the lighthouse and uh, you know it almost has this old style landscape of explorers, you know, with mm-hmm. a with a lighthouse, for example, and and maps and documents. And limited supplies. And, and yeah, limited exactly. supplies. And yet that's sci-fi and ecological horror. And yeah, it's a it's a great one. Yeah. I do wish I was I, I'll admit I was a little disappointed in the payout of the whole trilogy. I know. I was I, too I wish every one of them were that way. But but I want to read it again to realize well, just because it wasn't what you wanted doesn't mean that it was bad. And sometimes you got to get over that disappointment to figure out why it's good. You know, <laughs> right? No, I've <laughs>
1: thought of doing the same thing. Yeah, no, it's as far as like a world, one of those books where you're reading and you are completely immersed and it's unlike anything you've read before. I think this has got to be one of the strongest Yeah, books that, you know, like I we mentioned Jonathan Strange a lot. That was one for sure. And this too, where you are just all in from the beginning.
0: All right, Paul. Well, that's fun. And we've still got a couple more weeks before Halloween to really dig yeah. in. Of course, ghost stories are appropriate through the whole season. So, you know, but the rest of these, we got to dig. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have been looking at other other s- stories. I, I checked out T. Kingfisher. Um, I read the Twisted Ones, kind mm-hmm. of hoping that it might show up on this list. And I enjoyed it. Uh, a little bit of folk horror um, in, in and a, a play on the white ones an old, mm. an old story. Mm-hmm. And then I just got in from the library, something about the dead. Sorry. It's, it's her new one. Um, and it's based on the fall of the house of Usher. Oh, okay. And so I'm looking forward to, to reading it. It's fairly short, but I am trying to find some, some other newer and different uh, books to, to explore. Because again, a lot of this episode made me realize I'm certainly no expert, but I'm also fairly ignorant to what's really out there and and would like to get to know it a little bit better.
1: No, absolutely. Again, just to reiterate, if anybody out there has some books or sh- stories that they think maybe aren't on our radar or just a recommendation of your favorite, I would love to hear it because this is absolutely, I mentioned Stephen King so much because it was so foundational and I keep trying to recapture that magical, you know, right. scary feeling. And so I would always, always, always welcome recommendations.
0: Paul needs to feel like a terrified adolescent again. Exactly. That's all I want. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Thanks, everybody. Have a happy Halloween holiday. We will be back in November with some fun episodes. And uh, as we gear up for the end of the year, it's always exciting. absolutely. One of the best times. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.